Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Joining me today is our medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon. Thanks for joining me, Rob. You bet, Casey. Thanks for having me. Today, we are going to take a little different approach uh, to the airway and our airway management protocols here at MCHD. We've talked on prior podcasts before with specifics around our delayed sequence intubation protocol that we use. Several podcast for you to go back and listen to if you'd like. We're going to go a little deeper this time and dig into some of the finer points of airway management. Before we do, just a quick DSI review. What is the delayed sequence portion? The delayed sequence portion of our protocol is delaying the paralysis to allow for resuscitation and planning and thinking. We implement the rule of 15s here at MCHD, which allows for pre-oxygenation, adequate nitrogen washout. You know, it's all a, a process to allow for the increased length of visualization before the patient uh, becomes hypoxic. Uh, we can blood pressure uh, augment during this time period with push dose pressors. Uh, the sedation that we use here at MCHD, our preferred sedative is ketamine due to the hemodynamic uh, neutrality of ketamine as opposed to some of the other sedating agents. And our paralytic of choice at MCHD is rocuronium due to... Yeah, discussed in another yeah, podcast, more, ad nauseum. Yeah, more, yes. more ideal side effect profile. Right. So just to get that out of the way, um, just a little bit of background. What we really want to do today is move into some cases. And uh, I know that all the paramedics listening out there dread the scenario-based uh, exams that we do here at MCHD. So for all you listeners out there, this is our chance to... Sort of get back at the get back at the man at the and medical director. Yeah, gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna give Casey cases and he's gonna give them to me. Actually, I'm gonna give more <laughs> cases to uh, to uh, Dr. Dixon than he's gonna give to me. So this is uh, my chance to get the jab in. So let's roll into case one. The, these aren't gonna be super complex. We're gonna get some get some uh, talking points here. We've got a 31 33 year old thin male. You're called by family for the patient's uh, not waking up. Uh, there's some drug paraphernalia scattered in the room. You arrive, the patient has a GCS of four with a respiratory rate of four. So, Dr. Dixon, how do you approach this one, and what are some things here that may, may scare you a little bit? Yeah, great case, Casey. I think a couple things. First and foremost, we go back to the ABCs, right? So I initially uh, ensure stabilization, right? So I assess responsiveness. I assess the ventilatory effort. I go ahead and put full monitoring and, and including end tidal CO2 and oxygen on the patient. Uh, and I initially, I slow myself down. If I can verify that the patient's stable enough and I don't need to do an acute intervention, I start thinking through the differential for mental status and I look for reversible causes. So I check a blood glucose. With all this drug paraphernalia, is it a toxin? I take a quick look at the monitor, make sure we don't have a wide complex. It's not some gnarly toxin that's going to give them some instability there. And then I think that naloxone is a, a pretty reasonable option here, right? So if we can avoid an airway intervention, I think that's the best first choice is try to fix the patient before we need it. Now, it sounds like this patient is already hypoventilating. What would be appropriate for him is full monitoring and bag valve mass ventilation until, you know, stabilize the life threat until we get the patient sorted out. So let's, let's in the airway podcast, let's assume that he's narrow complex. Let's have a sugar of 102. Uh, let's put his sats in the low 80s, and you're 
bag idea is perfect, where do we go next? What are some of the considerations that we've seen in some of our cases here at MCHD and some of the general high points that you want to want to get out here? Right. So this is resuscitation without sedation, right? So this is a guy in the DSI scheme of things. We don't need to ketamine him. He's already ketamined himself, right? So I would bag him rule of 15s. I wouldn't cut corners on him. This is a risky guy, as you said, because this is a guy we're looking at and we go, oh, he's not too big. Looks like he's going to be easy. He's already sedated. And I think we're more apt to cut corners. I guess that's one of my take-homes here is never cut corners, right? Rule of 15s, every patient, every time, right? If we run that checklist, that's head of bed up 15, optic oxygenation at 15 liters by nasal cannula every time, every patient, and then 15 liters by non-rebreather mask in a spontaneous breathing patient or 15 liters by BVM with up to 15 a peep on every patient. So this patient, he's not spontaneously ventilating, I would use 15 liters of BVM with OPMP airway and up to 15 of PEEP to, to optimize him prior to paralysis. So this is a guy that the sedation timing, he's already sedated himself. We're not in a hurry to sedate him. So I would optimize him. I would keep him per our protocol at over 94 sat for greater than three minutes, make sure I'd run my checklist with my team, make sure everybody's happy with the plan, make sure I, I've verbalized a full set of bottle signs to the team and the plan and the backup and where the devices are. And then I would go through a regular intubation on him, which is I would do a sedation dose of ketamine on him. And then I would use a paralytic, intubate the patient, take it from their post-ventilatory management. So I think the key here is, is that this is a guy who's pre-sedated, so we're not in a hurry. We don't need to use ketamine for control here. He's already controlled himself. Uh, that being said, I would not skip that sedation step, part of ours, partially because we don't know what he sedated himself with. And remember, rocuronium half-life is going to be longer than the ketamine half-life. So you really, the IV ketamine half-life at least, so you really want to make sure that these patients stay good and sedated once we've paralyzed them. Yeah, and the last thing you want is him to wake up from whatever his self-sedation was uh, in the middle of the intubation attempt, pre-rock, or even worse, post-rock when you've got a paralyzed awake patient, which right. is the most most criminal outcome right. from, from my point of view. And really, when you go back to thinking about skipping the steps, um, you know, this is really analogous to what pilots do every day in, in my mind. And if you're in the middle of a, of a uh, storm and you're taking off from Seattle to Tokyo, you know, that's to me comparable to a difficult intubation patient. And obviously you want your pilot to run the checklist to the T every single time in that situation. But that same pilot, when he or she's flying from Dallas to Houston on a bluebird spring day, they're going to go through the same checklist that time as well, even though that's a shorter, easier, simpler seeming. I, I'm know. only really worried about my pre-departure beverage. Well, that, you're not flying the plane. Okay. Th thankfully, oh, good. Okay, thankfully. Good. But when you're when you're intubating and we're when we're intubating, you only need the you only need the checklist. You only need the protocol. You only need that fallback when it goes bad. And from mounds of literature out there. There are things that can help us predict a difficult airway, but they're not perfect. And that one can sneak up on you. And we've we've seen those cases. I've been a part of those cases managing patients myself. Absolutely. So let's move on to case two. This will be a little, little different scenario. It's a 39-year-old male uh, called to a house fire. You arrive, you find greater than 50% body surface area burns with skin sloughing on the arms and on the chest. Normal SATs, tachycardic to the 120s, 130s. Blood pressure is 150 
systolic. So this is obviously a, a drastically different case as opposed to case one. Do a little compare and contrast for the listeners. Right. So this is a classic case of a, a, I would call a traumatic mechanism delirium, just like a car crash with someone who has uh, severe traumatic injuries and altered mental status. This guy has severe traumatic burns and you cannot do anything. You can't assess the patient. You can't put full monitoring on. You can't do your job until you gain control first and foremost. So I put this in the exact same category as I would any medical delirium or traumatic delirium. So the first thing I would do with this patient is gain control. So straight away, I am ketamine, gain control so I can actually hook on, slow the process down once I've gained control, then full monitoring, bag valve mass ventilation if needed, assess that, assess the necessity to it. Because now we're early on, we need to really carefully assess his airway, see how he's going and see, do we need to go ahead and place a tracheal tube, or is the patient going to maintain a patent airway? And it's more of an assessment tool. The ketamine is more of an assessment tool. So can we assess the patient in case number one without ketamine sedation? Oh, absolutely. And we can do anything yes, we want right? to that guy. In it case two, bad. can we assess? Can we monitor? Can we do anything without sedation in that patient? He's going to be you know, bouncing off the walls. If you've got your skin sloughing greater than 50%, that we've got to start with being able to assess and control the patient. Right. So agree totally. So four milligrams per kilogram of IM ketamine straight away, not wrong in this patient. Because is he going to get better? No, he's not. And, you know, this, uh, we have cases like this all the time. And the vast majority of the time we get to examining the patients, we see, you know, a dry mucous membranes and maybe singed hairs on the face and singed nasal hairs and things that make us think, gosh, this patient's really going to have airway difficulty, right? In these burn patients, Get the tracheal tube early. It may look vastly, vastly different in 30 minutes. So even even less than that. These patients can swell enormously. They can look benign in, initially and swell terribly in the first uh, you know 30, 40 minutes. Read my mind there. That was my yeah. next question actually. So let's, I think very important point worth reiterating. What are some of those signs? So let's assume this patient had most of his burns initially visibly on the you know arms legs let's just say his face wasn't wasn't initially obviously involved but with that much body surface area involved the chance of airway burns are definitely going to be going to be high. high so Very what high. are let's run through those again you mentioned the uh, singed so, singed nasal hairs singed eyelashes uh, and just facial hair is very, very common. Very, very dry, beefy, erythematous uh, mucous membranes of the oral mucosa, the tongue. That's, to me, classic for some inhalational injury, right? A hot gas inhalational injury. In those patients, I would do a definitive airway straight away in that patient. No. Yeah, the, the other one I look for is I always try to have them open their mouth and look for soot. Correct. Soot, soot in the mouth, and, mouth is another one. No, that's a good point. So, yeah, just make sure that you're not focusing on extremity burns when they're that severe and forgetting to be very, very cautious and early with addressing their airway. So in this one, before we go on to the next case, let's just run through the algorithm here. We've got control, we've reassessed the patient, full monitoring, and now we've decided the patient needs to defend a airway. Don't skip your checklist. I go right back to the checklist. Hey, the bed goes up to 15. I put on aptic oxygenation on the 15, on, on the uh, 15 liters per minute nasal cannula on the patient. The patient's already being bag valve mass with a PEEP up to 15. I set up my tray at the same time. I have a backup, including a surgical airway backup, likely on this patient. I run the checklist verbally along with the vital signs with my team and ask everybody if they're happy, if they're ready. 
to continue on with the procedure. And that does two things for me, Casey. That makes, that makes me verbalize it and makes it easier for me to remember all those steps every time. And then it gives all the team members, whether it's the FROs or whoever's in the back of the ambulance or at the scene, it gives everybody an opportunity to go, wait a second, doc, you missed a spot. You missed what about this, right? It gets just a double check of these patients. And the other option with this patient, we've already given him ketamine. The question to me would be, would you go ahead and give a sedative dose and then the paralytic, once you had gotten the SATs 94 greater, you were happy with the plan? And my answer is absolutely yes. I would give another dose of sedative followed by the paralytic, pass the tube or definitive airway, and then post-ventilator management. So I think from the compare and contrast standpoint, once the patient is controlled, your algorithm is almost exactly the same with the caveat that you're probably going to put a little more emphasis on having surgical airway ready in case two because of the, the burn concern. Uh, but very similar, right? And I very would similar. I would echo the verbalization when I, I wasn't a verbalizer early in my practice. I've added it to my, uh, you know, my algorithm. And so many times I verbalize and forget the simple steps and the respiratory therapist in the room, uh, nurse in the room, you know, other providers in the room, hey, 15 head of the bed. Oh, yeah. You know, and it allows everybody the, uh, I think, the leeway and the freedom to speak up. So I would urge all our listeners out there to to overdo uh, the verbalization. I think it's a, it's a great habit. So let's roll into case three. We've got a 76-year-old female called for fever, cough, shortness of breath for three days. Uh, you arrive to find the patient lethargic with SATs in the 70s systolic of 75, heart rate in the 130s, and a temp of 103. So we're not doing a diagnostic dilemmas here. What's our diagnosis? It's sepsis, sepsis, or sepsis? Probably sepsis. Or it could be a PE. Probably, probably <laughs> sepsis. <laughs> right. So where do you start with this patient? This is a little different than one and two. What are what are our, uh, our road bumps here, and, and where do we start? Right. This is a scary one. So these are the classic patients that die under the old way that we were all taught for eons, right? Which is RSI, like got to get the tube at the cost of everything else. First pass success, all these other monikers for hurry up and get a tracheal tube placed in this patient. When in fact, this patient may, you know, may not be dying completely. Say if it's take out the respiratory symptoms, just give the hypotension, uptundation and hemodynamic instability. If they don't have a respiratory component, what are they dying of? They're dying of their septic shock. They're not dying of a primary respiratory cause. And so I focus on resuscitating this patient before we do anything with the patient. So that's push dose pressors, aggressive fluids. So those those two interventions go simultaneously here at MCHD. I would use one to 100,000 epinephrine, uh, 20 micrograms uh, every five minutes. Uh, for a goal, uh, systolic blood pressure of greater than 90, I would, I would do that in the same sentence with fluids. Those have to go together. Remember, you have to fill the tank before you add a presser. And the other thing I would do is OPMP airway, you know, my rule of 15. So head the bed up 15, 15 aptin oxygenation with a nasal cannula, 15 liters of bag valve mask with up to 15 to peep. Or if she's spontaneously ventilating, you can use 15 uh, uh, non-rebreather mask. Okay. Just real quick, uh, 
as as the listeners know, our paramedics always know the protocols better than the, the good doctors here talking, and even though we're the ones that write them. Our protocol does, for all you sticklers out there, read every two minutes for push-dose pressers. Oh, I'm sorry. I had to double-check <laughs> because I was like, I don't think it's five. I think it's two. But nonetheless, we want to use the push-dose okay. pressers. I think, I think how I taught it in CE was we had to pick a number, and I said, how long does it take to cycle the blood pressure cuff? That's how long you should wait in between doses, right? It, okay. Yes, there. we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get hate mail for that one. So I'm I, just pre- I think the medical I'm, director's been called out. I, I'm I'm protect no I'm protecting <laughs> us both. I'm protecting. We're the ones that wrote it. <laughs> Um, from the, the pitchforks of the yes. pitchforks coming. How could you do this? Every, all you listeners know the protocols better than I do. That's I right. freely freely admit that. So, um, what if though you can't get her sats greater than ninety four after five minutes of maxed out rule of fifteens? This is one that that we get a lot of questions about. So right. What, I mean, I ask, can she tolerate a, a superglottic? Here at MCHD, we use an eye gel device. I would ask myself, can I, does she have an intact gag reflex? Will she tolerate? Can I ventilate her and oxygenate her with a superglottic and rescue myself that way? Is, how am I doing bag, with bag valve mass maximized with OPMP airway? Can I manage her airway then? And I always think of it as, you know, the goal in these patients is not to intubate them. The goal is to manage their airway until we can get them to definitive therapy. And that has everything in the armamentarium from basic positioning, proper bag valve mass, superglottic, down the continuum to tracheal intubation and up to and including surgical airway. So remember, don't forget to use your entire armamentarium. Yeah, and I would say our, our goal is to manage the airway without putting them at greater risk, Correct. right? Because yes, I sir. think that yeah. that paralytic at times can be a, uh, uh, you know, a can pop the balloon. You know, that's that's that can be a, a detriment in in. Yeah, absolutely. I don't. I, I. That's why I like to. I'll. I'll bring up the dashes. Uh, Eagles saying, you know, I. I'm not this whole first past this and first past that. I think that that is a failed way of thinking because what that tells me is a provider is hurry up, hurry up and do this procedure. You got to get it on the first first pass all the time, and that that just pushes too hard. What what we tell our crews and what I, we want to focus on is. Can you place a definitive airway and manage the patient without harm, without any harm coming to them? So that's uh, definitive airway. This this dash is definitive airway sans hypoxia or hypotension. So that's kind of our goal here at MCHD. And that can, can we, we manage that? It could be a superglottic. Yeah. I'm super happy with it. We code people with them all the time. They're a perfectly good airway. And in and in the uber unstable patient, it could be a BVM. Right. I mean, it's not ideal. But I would rather you bag bag a patient up to ninety two and transport than or than give a paralytic at a borderline sat borderline blood pressure and end up with a patient in cardiac arrest because of uh, because of that. Right. So bottom line with this case, guys, the take homes are we we don't cut corners on these patients if you cannot maximize them. Right. You cannot optimize their uh, sat to ninety four greater for three minutes and their systolic blood pressure greater than 90, we do not paralyze these patients, right? We manage them another way. Manage them with an SGA, manage them with a, uh, a bag valve mask. So, so, what it, so if you can't get our blood pressure up greater than 90 after four doses of 20 mics of push-dose presser every two minutes or every five minutes or wherever you choose there, you give her a liter of saline and you're still on scene it, and she's still in the 70s or 80s systolic, 
are the questions any different than hypoxia? It's really the same, right? They're really the same. And I mean, it, it does keep you from giving an additional, if she, if she's already had a dose of ketamine, could you, could you, uh, take a look there, right? So if, if say if it was a hypotension patient only, so you optimized her, her, her oxygenation, but not her, her hemodynamics, could, yeah, you, we use a video laryngoscope. Yeah, you could take a look. And if you could pass and do a, uh, a drug assisted intubation, that's fine. You know, it's not putting in the patient. So the hard stops of paralysis are really, uh, it doesn't keep you from using that part of the armamentarium, i.e. a tracheal tube. It just keeps you from paralyzing, do, doing a paralysis intubation. Why is that? Because it puts the patient at greater risk than they need to be. Okay. And I would just close that one out with the idea that an IGEL in our service, a supraglottic airway, is a failed attempt or a failed airway. I would just encourage our listeners to kind of flush that from your brain. If you use a supraglottic and you maintain oxygenation, that's a successful airway in, in my book. So there's our, there's our, uh, there's our Wait, three I, cases for me. I, I get to pick on you. So uh, he got to do the three. So now I get to pick on him for one. So this is a, uh, the next case, Casey, and the last one we'll go through before we wrap it up. Uh, this is a 35-year-old guy, self-inflicted uh, gunshot wound. Uh, straight away under the chin, you arrive on scene, the patient has no visible mid-face or forehead. Uh, he's walking around in his house, and he's able to somewhat verbalize. You can't really hear much of what he's saying, and you don't recognize any, any facial structures. Uh, he's leaning forward, and blood is dripping, pouring kind of down on the floor. I just gave you the easy case, doctor. <laughs> Can I can I turn around and come back tomorrow? Is that that's not an option, is it? No, no, you cannot cancel the case. I can't. Can, I, I can't. <laughs> can, I'm going to cancel the operation. Can I work in the world of anesthesia and, and general surgery? But I, I, unfortunately, I guess fortunately, uh, I, I still like my job. Uh, these are ones that that we see infrequently, but we see them. And this is one where when we think about Plan A, Plan B, Plan C. For most of the cases we talked about, Plan A is going to be DSI. Plan B is going to be progression. You know. Uh, King Vision, uh, Channel Blade, Bougie, uh, passing into tracheal tube is plan A for our service most of the time. Plan B would be to uh, progress to an uh, IGEL, supraglottic airway, and plan C would be surgical airway. That's the majority of our of our uh, progression here at MCHD. But, but this, this patient would be one where uh, all bets are going to be off. If the patient is up and alert and semi-phonating, you know, I would want to get him hooked up to the monitor initially, just like the other patients, and see where our SATs are and see where our hemodynamics are. But in my mind, I'm quickly scrapping plan A and plan B and moving towards a surgical airway in this Great. patient so I'll, and prepping. I'll, I'll continue on with the case. You get him in the back of the truck. You start heading to the trauma center. You've got some help there. Initially, you hand him a suction catheter. He's able to handle his own uh, secretions. But now the patient is, uh, his sats are dropping. They're now uh, 92. He's becoming more agitated and uh, pulling around at things around him. Yeah, we're, 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 scra we're scrapping A and B here. We're, we're going to go, we're going to give that patient some sedation and we're going to head straight to a surgical So what airway. would your sedation of choice be there? What's your next open gambit? He's agitated. Yeah, he's what do you gonna, call for? It, it, hopefully we've got an IV in place and we can do two milligrams of, of per kilogram of IV ketamine. If he uh, has no IV in place and we're doing four milligrams per kilogram of IM ketamine, we're going to uh, make him controllable and still very quickly because we don't want to uh, be performing a surgical airway on a bucking bronco. That's uh, uh, less than ideal. 
And you want to quickly run through our procedure that we use here, kind of the, the five steps or so of our surgical airway procedure we use here. So first and foremost, we have to identify our landmarks. So we're looking for the thyroid cartilage and we kind of ski slope off the thyroid cartilage onto the cricothyroid membrane. Uh, we're going to identify that. Hopefully in this gentleman, you can still, you know, the injuries to his face, you can still uh, do those things. You want to, I'm right-handed, so I'm using my left hand to control the thyroid cartilage. I'm going, you know, we're not worried about prepping. Uh, we're not worried about sterility here. This is a, this is a, a crashing airway patient. Um, we're going to make a vertical cut through the, through the skin, make the horizontal stab uh, through the cricothyroid membrane, and we are using a bougie-assisted, finger-assisted cric here at MCHD, and then use a, a you know, 6 tube pass, look for uh, end title on our monitor when we're finished, just like we would any other airway, and secure that the best as possible. Yeah, I think that's um, a great description. You know, I mean, there's lots of other devices out there. I think our bias is that Nothing, nothing confirms a, a true airway rather than your own, your own hands, your own fingers. And so this is a very low frequency, very, very high risk procedure. We can't practice them every day, but what we can do is we can do a mental preparation. So we're going to, we're going to wrap up here with some uh, rapid fire points, just as we were putting the podcast together, some things that didn't really fit the cases, but we both wanted to sort of get out there. Uh, we've talked about here in the office and with crews a lot. We wanted all our listeners to hear what do you do if you bang the tube off the cords and it won't pass? This is one that I get questions about a lot. And there's some, there's some tips and tricks uh, a lot of our listeners probably know, but just to add to your sort of your uh, toolbox. Right. I think it's twofold, like especially with video laryngoscopy. I mean, once sometimes we can see it, but we can't pass anything. I think a lot of it is the placement of the, of the video laryngoscope. Many times as we have uh, Patrick Langham, one of our chiefs would say, you get too deep in the goo, back up a little bit. So it's, I back the video laryngoscope up. Um, you can retract the blade, give yourself a little room to manipulate. You can, you can manipulate the bougie. If it's a loaded bougie uh, through a video device, you can manipulate the bougie externally to direct the coup de tip where you want it to go. Also, you can, once you place the bougie in and say you can't place the tracheal tube, once you've got a bougie in the airway, you're golden, right? You can take the tracheal tube out of the video device and then manipulate the eye ring. Turn the tube, you can, you can move the patient's head as long as it's not a, a trauma and you're not worried about a C-spine, right? You can do external laryngeal manipulation, I think is, we don't think about that in video, but it's really a pretty useful tool in video. Yeah, and I, I am I, I bow to the altar of external laryngeal manipulation. I feel like it's woefully underused. It really allows you to alter the anatomy and get that sort of dexterity feel because it's your hand that's manipulating uh, the neck and and the and the anterior. Yeah, I hate area. that. I hate it if, uh, if people want to help. But there's nothing worse than when you're trying to intubate a patient if you have a 250-pound, well-meaning firefighter pushing down on the neck or someone, your, one of your partners your view pushing down the gone. neck. And you're like, wait a minute, I don't see anything. And remember, we're epiglottoscopists, right? I, we're going to steal that from Dr. Levitan. If you don't see that epiglottis and identify that structure, every time during intubation, you have no idea where you are. You don't know if you're in front of it. You don't know if you're behind it, right? It's just pink mush. So you remember, once you know where that epiglottis is, your money, you know exactly where the tracheal inlet is. And just a couple quick other bullet points. Remember that external laryngeal manipulation is for visualization and visualization only. The days of 
celic maneuver and burp and preventing aspiration. We know that's bunk now, uh, but you still can use your non-dominant hand or your, excuse me, your dominant hand, your right hand when you're, if you're right, if you're right-handed like me, you can still, you know, use, you use the anterior neck to change yeah. the anatomy, but it's not to prevent aspiration, just to be clear. Secondly, when we rotate the tube, what we're doing there is changing the angle of the bevel. And the bevel of the tip of the tube sometimes with that 90 degree turn can uh, allow for passage of the right. tube. And then, like you said, when you get the bougie between the cords, you're golden. You can take the tube off and switch to a smaller tube even right. if they've got, you know, uh, cord edema or something like that. So, yeah. so I'm going to I get to kind of finish off. And uh, this is one of Dr. Patrick's pet peeves. So he's a salad. I, I, w- I don't want to call you a salad hater. But let's bring up the ever-present, you know, the kind of the buzzword of the last couple of quarters has been the salad technique. So why don't you talk about the salad technique? So for listeners that aren't familiar, the salad technique is uh, a technique used for contaminated airways um, with the Ducanto catheter. Uh, Basically, the idea is to sink the catheter into the... uh, you know, posterior oropharynx and leave it there while you're intubating to allow suction of, you know, vomitus or other goo, as you said. Uh, and I think it's an excellent tool. I'm not at all a salad hater. I, it's valuable. Uh, I, love the, I love the catheter. I love the idea of leaving the suction catheter in place when you have a grossly contaminated airway. But what, my caveat that I think gets lost sometimes is that it's not a necessity every time. We know that severely contaminated airways occur, you know, less than 10%, 10% of the time at most. So my concern with constantly shoving catheters in people's posterior oropharynx, depending on their level of sedation, their level of paralysis and where they're at in that continuum, is that we're going to turn an uncontaminated airway into a contaminated one. So all the listeners out there, don't come at me with piss forks and, 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 say that I, I'm a salad hater because I'm not. I want to use it as a tool, but it's a tool when, we, when we're when we really concerned about potential contaminated airway or you've already got one before you start. I would urge you not to create contaminated airways with jabbing a, a catheter in patients uh, posterior oropharynx that didn't need it there to begin with. Is that yeah, fair enough? Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I'm sorry I brought up the salad hater. <laughs> we're going to get a bunch of podcast emails about yeah. salad hater, Dr. Patrick. So that's a great point to wrap it up. Casey, I guess if you had to make five points from today's presentation, what, do you, what are your top five take-homes from this one and, and well, bring I'd, it home for us? I would start with the delayed sequence pathway is a pathway that's created to allow to resuscitate the patient before we push paralytic, and that's to decrease associated peri-intubation arrest. The timing of the ketamine can be variable. It does not have to be before nitrogen washout, before rule of 15s. If the patient's already sedated, it can be just like the old RSI protocol paradigm where you give sedation, paralytic, and intubate with the catch that you've done the resuscitation and the washout and the rule of 15s without the ketamine because the patient's status allows you to do that. Secondly, if you have a patient that you can't control, if we're going to assess and resuscitate and rule of 15s and verbalize and do all of the checklists that we need to do to manage a patient's airway, like in the burn case, you've got to control the patient first. Give them sedation dose cetamine or ketamine straight away and, 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 and go from there. Second, thirdly, I would say I like retracting the blade 
um, and giving yourself room. I think that's a major point uh, to take home. SGA's not a failed airway. Uh, if you know, our goal is to oxygenate and resuscitate, resuscitate the patient and to allow their airway to be maintained during our transport. And if that, in the end, doesn't involve a paralytic and ADT tube, that's totally okay. And finally, mental reps for high-risk, low-frequency procedures are vital. We, none of us crike every day, at least nobody that I know. So if you're not running through those steps like we just did mentally, and you're not doing uh, practice with, we got some, we've got some crike models here in the office. We're going to get them. We're, we're trying our hand at 3D modeling here at uh, MCHD. We're going to get them out to all the stations. Even simple things like that. It doesn't have to be a cadaver situation. It doesn't have to be super fancy. It can just be verbalizing your crike steps and, uh, you know, practice with your hands in the direction that, you, you know, you're going to go. So that, those would be my five. Uh, anything you want to add to those? No, I think that's a great way to close it out. And as always, guys, if you have questions, comments, uh, please send them to the podcast email. It's podcast at mchd-tx.org. Uh, and for Dr. Patrick and myself, uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Have a good day. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.